Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Funny story. Yeah. Bernie Sanders' campaign, he, uh, they got called out because they weren't paying minimum wage to their campaign workers. Okay, So then they said, okay, we're going to pay minimum wage. And guess what they did? They reduced hours. So <laughs> this is, an, again, the short-sightedness of, of the of status politicians, oh, let's just push this one number up. It's like, you know how they say the Federal Reserve tinkers with the thermostat. They don't actually change the temperature in the room. Right. Anyway, you're, you're gonna, but, but what does this show? This shows that, that reality crucifies illusions. And it doesn't matter, it's sad, frankly, to me that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren keep getting away with the invincible fallacy. It keeps wrecking them and they keep face planning in their own campaigns. And yet it's something that people rally behind and roughly half of the country is willing to vote for these hucksters. I don't think the Republican party is necessarily better, but in terms of lying about inequality, whether they mean to or not, that these politicians are, are really something that I can't accept. Yeah, agreed with that completely. And I mean, just to, I guess, advocate for the, the layman on these topics, if you do present yourself as the politician, like, hey, I'm here to end unemployment, everyone. Here's my, my policy. I'm going to eliminate the minimum wage. If you don't think through that, if you don't think through the hidden consequences, then that sounds like a really bad proposition. Like, what do you mean you're going to eliminate unemployment by paying us less? Um, but you have to kind of get into this second order thinking process that, that souls highlighting in economics to understand that that's actually the truth, right? The only way to eliminate unemployment would be to remove the minimum wage, at least institutional unemployment. You're still going to have cyclical unemployment right. as you right. know, industries churn and all that. So, But the business cycle should get less drastic, right? That's right. the other idea because the markets become more efficient. Uh, you, you made me think of, of a really interesting point in there. And it's this idea that, so there's this counterintuitive effect. So, and really where soul is coming is that the invincible fallacy is invincible because people refuse and ignore all the statistics that go against it. So here's another one. And what soul is getting us to think about and what he's getting us to study hidden consequences by showing us the difference between what people say, what politicians say will happen and what actually happens. And a great example of that is the Laffer curve. Okay. And what he says is that, so Elizabeth Warren, AOCs of the world, they want the marginal tax rate to be whatever it is, 90%, 95%, 80%. It doesn't matter what the number. They don't understand the Laffer curve. What does that mean? Many times throughout history, you raise the tax rate and tax revenue goes down. You drop the tax rate and tax revenue goes up. That's because behavior is counterintuitive. And the reason, let's take an example. Let's say you raise the corporate tax rate. Apple is going to continue to keep their cash reserves overseas. If suddenly the tax rate becomes reasonable, they're going to bring their huge cash reserves into U.S. banks and start spending it. And it's going to be a great boon for the American economy. So there's two lies here. One is this idea that, hey, just because I say I'm going to move this number, it will actually move. So here are the difference between tax rate and tax revenue. And then because people don't respond to laws, they respond to incentives. And, and this is kind of the tricky thing. And the second thing, second lie, is that there's such a thing as a greedy corporation. No, uh, like Kodak, Eastman Kodak was a great company. It's nothing. It's not worth anything now because right. it was disrupted by a technology patent that it owned by digital sensors. And that's the best 
the free market is still the best way we have to check corporate monopoly, number one. So anyway, it, it just it just kills me when you really start to think about this. The first lie is that corporations are, A, getting rich off the, the backs of Americans. They can become poor tomorrow, number one. And number two, that we need to somehow tax them more. They're not even the same corporations in the upper 1%, like year over year. And it's not even like we raise the tax rate, we're going to get more money for the American people. So here we are again, where you know, politicians are allowed to advance dreams without any empirical evidence. And people are, yay, let's vote for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate, honestly, that the rhetoric is so effective. And I guess the rhetoric is effective because, I don't know, in many ways, it seems like we're still in very formative years in our understanding of economics, right? We didn't even have, we had the marginal theory of value in the mid 1800s. So yep. we're very much in kind of like maybe coming out of an economic dark ages with something like Bitcoin, perhaps. But um, it, it definitely seems to be the science that human beings are weakest in understanding in general. Um, I love that you said people respond to incentives rather than laws. This is, I mean, that's so fundamental, I think, to crafting any policy whatsoever. You can't just say something will be by fiat and then expect to beat people over the head until they do it. I mean, that might work in small, local, temporary settings, but over the long haul, people have large incentives to defect or abdicate from that type of treatment. So that's not going to work. You need to incentivize yep. them into the behavior that you want. Um, greed versus self-interest, you know, the, the greedy corporations are always being blamed, but I think the line there is private property. Like you want all the capitalists pursuing their self-interest up to the boundary of other people's private property. It's when you exceed that threshold when you start to violate someone else's person or property to improve your economic or political position that seems to be the real problem here but that's not what politicians do right they blame everything's greed profits are greed it's almost like they're demonizing profit itself which as you said earlier is this signal of market efficiency right that means you're satisfying a want in an economic way and you're creating value yep. for the market and for yourself you're creating value and politics or politicians attack that that is the very that's the generative source of market coordination right prices and profits so um i want to pause this here kind of mathematical illiteracy is so there was an example actually if you remember amazon wanted to move their headquarters to new york and I'm making up numbers, but the the overall outline of the story is correct. And let's say Amazon would have paid 50 billion in taxes. And what the state of New York said, or Amazon said, hey, we would like a tax break and we only want to pay 25 billion. Okay. And Representative AOC said, oh no, we're losing $25 billion. There's $25 billion of the American people's money going to Amazon. Completely wrong. Right. It's again, it's lying with numbers. And what she actually did was deprive New York and the people of New York and the wagers of New York, the restaurant, the people who are who are, you know, working those blue collar jobs, deprive them of a tremendous source of income objection because she didn't understand the difference between a reduction in revenue versus not having that revenue at all. <laughs> yeah, that's so so funny. Yeah. Another self-defeating act by a politician. So you made a point earlier that today's leading nations or individuals can be tomorrow's lagging nations or individuals and vice versa, right? There's a lot of mobility up and down the, uh, up and down various hierarchies, whether, and I'll, I'll read an excerpt here from Sol. I think that really edifies the point. He writes that Scotland was for centuries, one of the poorest, most economically and educational lagging nations on the outer fringes of European civilization. There was said to be no 14th century Scottish baron who could write his own name. And yet in the 18th and 19th centuries, a disproportionate number of the leading intellectual figures in Britain were of Scottish ancestry, including James Watt in engineering, Adam Smith in economics, David Hume in philosophy, Joseph Black in chemistry, and Sir Walter Scott in literature, and John Stuart Mill in economics and philosophy. Among the changes that had occurred among the Scots was the Protestant church's crusade, promoting the idea that everyone should learn to read, so as to be able to read the Bible personally, rather than have priests tell them what it says and means. Another change was a more secular but still fervent crusade to learn English, learn the English language, which replaced their native Gaelic among the Scottish lowlanders and thereby opened up far, 
far more fields of written knowledge to the Scots. So there's, I mean, what really jumps out at me here is the idea that a big push to get people to become literate, which uh, another way you could put that is people are basically installing new software into their mind, right? They're becoming learning to deal with a word on their own rather than having to use an intermediary. This is what gave them the, uh, the tools and technologies, if you will, to go from a laggard nation where they said, what, a guy, there was no Scottish baron in the 14th century that even knew how to write his own name to all of a sudden, you know, a few centuries later, putting out all these um, famous intellectuals across various fields. So it's not about, it has nothing to do with race, right? Or nationality per se. I mean, I want to say it has nothing to do with that, but it has much less to do with that than it does something uh, as a critical as, as literacy, for instance. I love that anecdote. And it's one that really stuck with me. It illustrates a few interesting things. So first, the butterfly effect was the Scottish people and the Scotsmen and the Scotswomen had N minus one of the prerequisites for success. As soon as literally was installed, literacy was installed, they vaulted to their, their rightful position or, or they were finally able to produce at the level of their human capital and at the level of their capabilities. And there are, are so many interesting examples of this. So historically, we've seen periods where, where China was behind, China was ahead. Uh, in the 19th century, Japan was very far behind. And look what happened in the 20th. You know, there was a time when it was thought they would completely overtake and dominate American industry. And it's again, because these unevenly distributed factors of success were suddenly met, the criteria were suddenly met, and we got an uneven outcome. And the beauty of this, again, is that in a single generation, you can go from being a totally backwards nation to being the foremost nation in the world. And a really inspiring example of that for me is Africa. And there are some structural reasons why Africa is poor. The two biggest being Africa has very poor soils. And second is a lot of it is landlocked. And you can very show that you know, river-based cities or coastal nations are more prosperous. And so with all these factors working against it, now let's look at in the climate of innovation, where your geographical location doesn't matter as much, Africa can suddenly, and I expect, I fully expect this to happen, can jump to the forefront. And part of it coming from an immigrant family, a lot of it is that the hunger and that fire to succeed is something that only thrives under adverse circumstances. So it's amazing how advantages and disadvantages keep morphing one into the other. And again, this turnover, there's no single nation that's ever on top forever. There's no single company that's ever on top forever. The only one who, who claims immortal supremacy and is very hard to get rid of is government. And ironically, government tries to stop that mobility in society, stop that mobility in enterprise, and they become the stultifying force that prevents the people in lower socioeconomic strata in, in both minority religions, minority races from actually lifting themselves out through this, this accelerating process of disparity. And, and that's why disparity is, even though it sounds bad, and even discrimination when it's type 1A or type 1B is quite rational and quite healthy for human outcomes. Yeah, excellently said. Um, it seems like this whole idea of government trying to restrict exchange or restrict freedom to just really seems to inhibit the market process that creates this possibility of mobility, right? So there, again, it's we're back to this thing of, of government action being self-defeating. And I think, you know, Mises makes a great point here, again, that um, one of my big takeaways from reading human action was that essentially all government action is a misallocation of capital because it involves coercion, right? You're not, you're, again, you're breaking up the self-sorting or self-organization of individuals in a market economy. You're, you're distorting or disrupting that. Um, so, I, I, you know, we've talked about this a few times, but I think it's such a crucial anecdote that I want to read this excerpt to you. And this is about China. Uh, and he writes, China was for centuries the most technologically advanced nation in the world, especially during what were called the Middle Ages in Europe. The Chinese had cast iron a thousand years before Europeans. A Chinese admir admiral led a voyage of discovery that was longer than Columbus's voyage, generations before Columbus's voyage, and in ships far larger and technologically more advanced than Columbus's ships. One crucial decision in the 15th century, in 15th century China, however, Set it in motion, set in motion a radical change in the relative positions of the Chinese and Europeans. 
Like other nations demonstrably more advanced than others, the Chinese regarded those others as innately inferior, as barbarians, just as the Romans likewise regarded peoples beyond the domain of the Roman Empire. Convinced by the exploratory voyages of its ships that there was nothing to be learned from other peoples in other places, the government of China decided in 1433 to not only, to not only discontinue such voyages, but to forbid such voyages or the building of ships capable of making such voyages and to greatly reduce the influence of the outside world on Chinese society. Plausible as this decision might have seemed at the time, it came as Europe was emerging from its dark ages of retrogression in the wake of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and was now experiencing a renaissance of progress in many ways, including progress based on developing things that had originated in China, such as printing and gunpowder. Columbus's ships, though not up to the standards of those once made in China, were sufficient to cross the Atlantic Ocean in search of a route to India and to inadvertently make the world-changing discovery of a whole hemisphere. In short, Europe had expanding opportunities for progress both within itself and in the larger world, opened up to it by its expansion into the other half of the planet at a time when China's rulers and had chosen the path of isolation, not total, but substantial isolation. The straitjacket of isolation inflicted on many parts of the world by geographic barriers that left whole peoples and nations both poor and backward was inflicted on China by its own rulers. The net result over the centuries that followed was that China fell behind in an era of great technological and economic progress elsewhere in the world. Sorry, that's a long excerpt, but I just, it's such a great point uh, and a great vignette of the dangers of, of government intervention on the success of your civilization as a whole. Isola is also showing there that discrimination type two has costs for the discriminator, right? So when we talk about economics as a study of hidden consequences, it isn't just the people who are discriminated against that have costs imposed on them, but the government itself. So that's a classic example, 1400s, where the Chinese government by fiat decides to inflict their type two discrimination on the entire population. And as a result, the cost is that they go down in poverty. And Seoul goes on, uh, he cites a statistic, I think that as late as 1994, the overseas Chinese were earning more money than the entire GDP of China. So yeah, again, that's right, right here. With race. Sorry, I'll just read it real quick. Um, as late as 1994, the 57 million overseas Chinese produced as much wealth as the billion people living in China. So again, it just goes to show you what, you know, how, what freedom does, I guess, for, for wealth and, and whatnot. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit, there's all these perverse instantiations, right? People follow incentives, not laws. And it reminds me once again that we may try and do very noble things at a policy level for society. China was trying to be noble. They were actually trying to protect their people from the barbarians of the rest of the world. What they ended up doing was protecting their people from progress. And in the same way, the, the US government and the authoritarian politicians are trying to be noble and trying to help people earn less money by raising the minimum wage. What they actually do is deprive people in lower socioeconomic strata of income mobility and of income at all. And it is amazing. I guess there's no end to these paradoxes. And that's, that's really the, the lesson of Seoul as a whole is we have to look and think and x-ray through these very trite political slogans, such as these are tax cuts for the rich, when there's no such thing. We just gave an example where a tax cut could actually lead to a revenue rise and the coffers of the government fill up more and if possible, they're able to help more people. So, so it's really about seeing through these, these kinds of, again, lies with statistics and lies with facts. And again, I, I kind of made this up listening a little bit to Michael Knowles. I, I'm gonna repeat myself because I think it's important. The statist syllogism, which goes like this. The past was a tragedy, the present is a crisis and the future will be a paradise if you give us the power. And that if is really the operant word there. It requires, requires them to lie and distort about how, the, whether they do it intentionally or not is irrelevant. It requires them to lie about the past to get what they want. And, and I wanna give some, some interesting examples here. So the, what are the, there are network effects in a language. So not just literacy, but actual individual languages can affect success and I wanna explain that. As Czechoslovakia was beginning to, to, I don't know, rise in prominence or become more wealthy, it was critical that the Czechs were allowed to learn German 
because science, technology, engineering, and medicine was all already done in German. And I want to show basically not only the invincible fallacy at work, but the toxic mindset that that implies. And have you, have you heard this, this concept of, of toxic masculinity? I've heard of it, but that's the extent of my knowledge about it. So I'd like to define it and then explain how it relates to the, the invincible fallacy, it, probably in an unexpected way. So I guess to put a definition to it, toxic masculinity is aggression to the point of destruction. Okay. And starting in the 60s, again, a very noble philosophical movement became institutionalized incorrectly in law. So the prevailing vision starting in the 60s was that people were depraved because they were deprived. And then they began to advocate this process of unsorting, and we're going to forcibly unsort people, and we're going to make everybody equal. And the distinction I want to introduce for the audience is this is what I call toxic femininity. So if, to if toxic masculinity is aggression to the point of destruction, toxic femininity is inclusion to the point of destruction, right? Mm. And a classic example of that is Dunbar High School. We're going to force you to include not people of a different race. It's all within the same race. We're going to force you to include certain individuals who are disruptive. Your self-sorting is now gone, and we destroyed the outcome for your group. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Let's have another government program. Another example, so there, there has been a movement to support this concept of uh, you know, a different kinds of English, uh, Black English or Ebonics, as, as some professors call it. And the sociologists who champion this, or, and the, I guess, from a pedagogical standpoint, anybody that championi champions it, is actually championing the isolation of a people from progress. And I want to give an example. So if the Czechs had said, wait a minute, the Czech language is supreme, we don't want to learn the German language, they would have isolated themselves from the progress in science, technology, engineering, and medicine. And so this toxic feminine idea, I think, which really starts to take, take root in the 60s, basically says, while their language is perfectly valid, it should be included. And that inclusiveness, again, inclusion to the point of destruction, actually isolates them from the rest of the world because we don't, unfortunately, have great works of, of science and mathematics that are written in Ebonics or written in Black English. So this is, again, this idea. And again, Sowell himself, an African-American, is attacking this idea. He really makes the point that these ideas which pretend to be compassionate are deeply destructive to the fabric of society, deeply destructive to this self-sorting function, and produce opposite outcomes once again. So in trying to validate everyone, we've talked about this before, and give everyone a trophy, you, you actually destroy the ability of people to advance themselves. Yeah, it's, it seems like they're, it's almost like a totalitarian impulse of some kind where you think you have this perfect knowledge about a situation. So you, you need to impose the, the consequences of that knowledge onto reality. And that typically um, it just doesn't work, right? It, it almost totally backfires. You could, there's, I heard once it was said sort of tongue in cheek, but I think there's some truth in it that you could describe legislation, the true intent of any legislation, uh, piece of legislation by just inverting its title you know whatever it says it's going to do it's actually going to create the exact opposite um and back on this this topic of of the leaders and laggards right across these different domains how quickly they can flip you know he's broken it down to people institutions technology and nature this is another one inside of institutions um talking about the eastman kodak episode he writes that Eastman Kodak, which had produced the world's first electronic image sensor, was undone by its own invention, which other companies developed to higher levels in digital cameras. These included electronics companies, not initially in the photographic industry, such as Sony, whose share of the digital camera market was more than double that of the Eastman Kodak by the end of the 20th century and in the early 21st century when digital camera sales skyrocketed. With the sudden collapse of the market for film cameras, Kodak's vast array of photographic apparatus and supplies based on film technology suddenly lost most of their market and the Eastman Kodak company disintegrated economically. Its mastery of existing prerequisites for success meant nothing when just one of those prerequisites changed. So, I mean, this is an example of just a company that pioneered the space of film photography and even digital they they had the patent for the first they digital pioneered sensor. digital right they pioneered digital but they they didn't transition right they didn't shift their focus to uh the new technological reality and they were undone ultimately by 
by that decision. So just another one of those examples where one of these leading pioneering companies, you know, with just one misstep can basically fall catastrophically. And this is creative destruction at work. And, you know, the funny thing is that opponents of free markets are always worried about and always talking about monopolies. But as the Eastman Kodak example shows, there's no intellectual trench or economic trench you can dig for yourself deep enough that you'll never be disrupted. And the greatest defense against monopoly is just competition. And again, the irony, I don't, I don't want to come across as an anarchist. I'm not. Uh, I also don't want to say that all government actions are bad. I do want to say that they all have unanticipated consequences. The only monopoly that can never disappear is the government. Or it doesn't disappear without grave consequences, usually in the cost of human lives. And that is a great irony to me, that the people who are pretending they're here to protect the world against monopoly just create a greater monopoly, which is even more difficult to remove. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. I, I've I've struggled with this one myself. Like, could we do governance in a non-monopolistic way? And um, I'm not sure. I'm still still trying to wrap my head around that one. But uh, definitely seems to be a norm of human history. Ever since we started doing agriculture, we basically had government for forever. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible, and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. There's a question I wanted to fl flip back to you. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Just before you get back into Seoul, you, you made this really interesting point that the, the check on self-interest is property rights, okay? And I think what we've been exploding and discrimination type two and one B to some extent are really collective thinking. And really where we want to go is this ability to treat people, discriminate on individual bases. I'm gonna give some examples there, but I have a question for you. And I struggled with this during COVID. And it was like, okay, but when you have a collective situation like an infectious disease, it doesn't seem like property rights are enough to justify the freedom of the individual. And I think there are, I think we will do better as libertarians and people who advocate for freedom if we can address some of these sticky areas. And I'm just curious what in a world where a disease could be transmissible, I don't think the infection fatality rate of COVID was as high as, as anybody was concerned, but you know, where does, does property rights even take care of that? Like, like, I mean, because I could be inhaling, you know, microscopic particles into the air that are influencing you without your choice. What, what are we missing? What's more needed for the philosophy to be more complete and address these kind of collective risk situations, if they're even real? That's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, what I would say is that in a world, in an actual free market where we had hard money, for instance, people would have at least had the option to take a step back from interaction with society, right? Because presumably more people would have more savings, right? That's just kind of a natural, again, people follow incentives, right. not laws. You're incentivized to save hard money. So if hard money were widely available, 
if we're on a global gold standard or or Bitcoin, I guess if this is a future setting, people would have a lot more savings. So they would have a, a bulwark against the uncertainty of things like a global pandemic. Um, further to that point, to some extent, I think most of the damage actually done was the state intervention, right? Um, the, the it was our reaction to COVID that hurt us more, more than anything else. Yeah. Yes. So that would not be as much of an issue in this hard money world, right? You just wouldn't, you'd have less state intervention. The, the government would not be as large because it would not have a printing press. So you'd have less state intervention, less harmful effects from that. Um, but in terms of like, how does property rights address how we interact with one another biologically? I'm not sure we can ever, it can't be perfect, right? Like we're all here on one planet. We're all, if you're going into yeah. a city or a market setting or a meeting or a company, like where you're around other people, you're taking certain biological risk always, right? Every handshake, every <laughs> elevator ride, whatever it is, there's certain biological risks that I don't think property rights can really do much about. Yeah. But again, if you had really strong property and hard money, you would presumably have more of an option to not engage in those settings, right? If you were really deathly afraid of COVID, if you're a, a high risk individual or whatever, presumably you would at least have more uh, savings and therefore option to just not engage in those settings for the period of time that the pandemic took hold. So maybe there's an indirect uh, relationship here where if you have stronger property rights that people would have just more optionality to not engage in those uh, settings where, where transmission might occur. But I don't think you could ever like actually fix it with property. It's not like you're going to draw a force field around people. Uh, I, mean, yeah. I mean, who knows what technology is going to do, but we don't have it yet. That's the blurriness, right? Because you're, especially with something like an infectious disease, your body is not a discrete entity. It kind of runs in, you know, the, right. the vapor, like you, there was time when people were paranoid about, oh, like, don't, don't bike behind somebody who's running with COVID because they're exhaling so many of these particles. But right. you help me see something, Robert, which I think is really important. What you're calling optionality, I think so will call self-sorting. Okay. And there's a, I mean, I encourage people to look up his work. There's a guy, maybe you've had him on the show. If not, you really should. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. So he is both a PhD in economics and a PhD in medicine. And he was kind of, you know, they never had him on TV. <laughs> they made sure to sweep him under the rug and not hear anything from him. And it, what he said is that the correct way to deal with this as a society was something that he called focused protection, which is, you know, people who are at a very high infection fatality risk, a very high complication risk, which is essentially people over 65, right? Age and obesity were the two variables that they should be protected and isolated. And the rest of us, for the most part, again, up to what your individual risk factors are, should, should go on with life as normal. And this is not dissimilar from what Sweden did and, and you know, ultimately by the numbers they, they came out victorious, I think. And so here's a point I wanna make. The ability, individual optionality, individual free will allows people to self-sort and to assess their own risks. And that is really the answer. And that's how we start to think about our problem, when we are faced with a collective threat, what we actually need to be doing is optimizing individual optionality so that people who have greater knowledge of their own risk than any central planner can make that decision. And I want to thank you for making that connection because I've been struggling with that a lot. And I don't think the, you know, the, the simple hardline libertarianism of like, oh, individual rights are supreme is obviously not true because you can't violate other people's rights, including their property rights. But this is really interesting. And it goes back to our earlier podcast. Basically, what we're saying is that what we should, what we should optimize when faced with a threat, let's call it a collective threat, is information. And we should allow people to engage 1A and 1B discrimination so they're not left with the blunt instrument of, of type 2 discrimination. Yeah, great points there. And I, I think, yeah, this is probably key to understand, right? The individual optionality increases as the integrity of private property increases, right? You're just able to keep more of the fruits of your own labor. So you're able to accumulate more wealth, keep more of the wealth that you create. And the market on balance is going to create more wealth. There's just You're taking theft, right? To say you have perfect private property rights is to say, you have 0% tax or 0% theft occurring on that property. But the trap we've been in, I think, historically, is that you needed the institution of government to enforce you know, private property rights and the related rule of law. And so government, you know, it's like whoever said this, the government that 
governs best governs least. It's like you needed government to just do that thing and not abuse its monopoly on violence to do any other thing. But that has never, we've never been able to keep that Leviathan um, harnessed, I guess. Like once you put the monopoly on violence in place that's there to preserve private property rights, it's only a matter of time before they start to um, predate on private property rights. They start to increase taxation, increase inflation, increase regulation. So, you know, we need it. I don't know. It seems like we needed something like Bitcoin to put a check on government. You know, gold sort of filled this function historically. If your government was being oppressive, you just ship the gold somewhere else and go set up shop elsewhere. But that's not as practically useful. And, you know, there's a lot of physical attack vectors on gold that aren't present uh, on Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, I guess government works as an institution to preserve private property rights so long as there is a check on it a check on its overreach or overgrowth, which hopefully, you know, something Bitcoin provides uh, a really effective form of. Two, two great points that you made there. So first was the kind of liquidity and privacy and hideability of, of digital rights and digital assets. And there are examples, you talked about gold, there are examples, the Swiss banks were sued and found guilty. And there was, you know, one of the few cases where there was actually, there's a name for this, a dissident who left Switzerland and came to America because he found logs that showed that Jewish people who were fleeing Nazi Germany were unable to get their gold from the bank. And there are also these famous examples of the platinum wire. You know, there's a guy who, who converted all of his wealth into platinum wire and like made hangers for the clothes because he knew the, yep. soldiers, the soldiers would shake him down, right? Whereas if, you're, if your seed words are, are in your brain, that is infinitely more portable. So, you, so you, this is like a really interesting point. The other thing which I think you addressed, which is very important, and I, I want to be careful that this podcast and the things we say aren't misconstrued and you're going there as saying that all government is bad. And you kind of made an argument. You said government is something to the effect that government should be as big as needed, but no bigger. Right. right. And what is this minimal boundary? And, and this is kind of the argument for minarchy, which I, I want to bring up and we can use this to bridge to the next episode or, or think how we, how we want to transition. But the argument for minarchy over anarchy, the argument for minarchy is that justice should never be on sale. And what you pointed out was that the, the government's sole job is really to enforce the rule of law. Now, where this becomes promiscuous is the, the definition of the law starts to change and drift over time. And like now Leviathan is just doing its job and actually turns out to be very oppressive. And I want to tie that up with toxic femininity and then, then turn it back to you. Uh, we recently had a, a candidate for the Supreme Court. I think Katanji Jackson Brown was her name. And she was asked, what is a woman? And she said, I don't know. She continued with, I'm not a biologist. And what I want to bring up, Hayek has is the pillars of society, law, language, and money. And this toxic femininity or leftist idea that everybody should be included in everything also starts to destroy categories to the point where they cannot be protected anymore. Right. So if you are a judge and you don't know what a woman is, I understand there may be a very noble reason you have for stating that. How can you protect women and enforce the law? Very serious question that I have. So what we're going into here is how uh, the state begins to drift from its original purpose because the law gets redefined. And Sol has this idea, I don't remember exactly where it comes in. He says, if you admit one single absurdity into the structure of the law, like I don't know what a category is, or this category right. could include everything, you kind of destroy the whole philosophical framework because it only takes one paradox to ruin the whole thing. Yes, great, great point. Um... Yeah, it's it's so interesting how it's it is the this um, breakdown of categories. It, you know, and we see this a lot in political rhetoric too, where they're attacking language, um, even money itself. Right? When you're debasing the currency, you're debasing the ability for market actors to perform economic calculation. I mean, this blurs a lot of lines, creates a lot of confusion, and I think to your point, creates like it's systemically destructive. Right? If you allow one instance of that. It's kind of like a moldy bread theory, right? If you got a big loaf of bread, yep. you put one little piece of mold in there, the whole thing is is a, is gone. Um, so yeah, it, that it's funny. And then one last point I would make there is just the rule of law itself. I had a great conversation with Stefan Kinsella, who's a, a libertarian uh, attorney. And he made this very crucial point that the entirety of the rule of law exists to resolve disputes over property. You know, we commonly say possession is nine tenths of the law, but he said, no, actually, it's 10 tenths of the law. The whole thing exists. So it all grounds out in property. 
So that's why it's one of these concepts that's very poorly understood. I wish there were a better word for it too. Because when you say the word property, people always think the stuff, typically think the land, the car, the company, whatever, but it's the relationship, right? It's, I have exclusive rights and responsibilities to this asset. So the relationship between owner and asset is property and government sort of exists to preserve the integrity of that, that list or that relationship. But of course, in a position of absolute power over that list, they tend to start to amend it to, in their own favor. And that's what printing money is, right? Printing money is a violation of private property. You're stealing from those that are saving in dollars, awarding those that get newly printed dollars or hold assets first. So it's it's kind of a trap we've been in, I guess. So that's why Bitcoin is like such, it's another place where Bitcoin shines. You're like, wow, we really needed this to make civilization sustainable at all. And because, I, and I think the, the fundamental reason is the avenues of attack are so limited, right? We, we just gave an example of how the avenues of attack for gold are fairly open. And the idea of property that could be purely intellectual based on the series of, of digits, essentially, is, you know, kind. it starts to introduce this hard boundary of unrobability. I'm not excited about memorizing my, my C words <laughs> and, and, you know, you got fleeing from an oppressive government, but it is much more possible than it would be if, if somebody had their wealth in gold. Right. Absolutely. And you don't, you know, you can also do multi-sig and other things. Um, it doesn't have to be, it's not all or nothing. It's not like all your money's in the bank or all your money's in your head. There's a lot of different ways to, to store it and move it and whatnot, but um, yeah, really interesting. So this, I want to jump back into soul here. And now we mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to read a couple of these excerpts because I think it's so brilliantly highlighting the inarguable reality of inequality when he starts looking at nature. Yeah. So I'll read this excerpt. Without right. discrimination, right? So With, there's inequality, yes. but there's no discrimination. Moreover, that inequality can be good for us. So Yes, absolutely. Inequality without discrimination, soul rights. Multiple factors have to come together in order to create tornadoes. And more than 90% of all the tornadoes in the entire world occur in just one country, the United States. Yet there is nothing startlingly unique about either the general climate or the terrain of the United States that cannot be found as individual features in various other places around the world. But all the prerequisites for tornadoes do not come together as often anywhere in the rest of the world as in the United States. And he goes on to write, uh, and this is a, an excerpt from someone else's book, but he writes, South America's Amazon basin contains the world's largest expanse of tropical rainforest. Its diversity is renowned. On a single Peruvian tree, Wilson found 43 species of ants comparable to the entire ant fauna of the British Isles. So he found as many species of ant on one tree in Peru as exist on, as exist in all of the British Isles. I mean, that just blows my mind. Um, and finally he writes, similar gross disparities have also been found between the number of species of fish in the Amazon region of South America compared to the number in Europe. Eight times as many species of fish have been caught in an Amazonian pond the size of a tennis court as exists in all the rivers of Europe. So there are just these giant ranges of disparity in nature, right? Naturally occurring, the frequency of tornadoes, the number of ant species in an area that have clearly have nothing to do with human <laughs> discrimination whatsoever. Uh, and that, I mean, that really drives the point home for me. Like this is, it, it's, a, it's, it's fundamental to the fabric of reality, this idea of inequality. And it's not something that we created or we legislated into existence or we screwed up and made all these unequal outcomes. Like it is what is. He go, he, there's a quote that Sowell addresses to this and he, he attributes it to, I believe, a well-known economist. He says, the, the playing field is never level. And instead of ruining that fact, we should understand why that's important. The fact that the playing field is never level means one nation will never dominate another for infinity. One race will never dominate another forever. Poor people will not remain poor and rich people will not remain rich. I could not write a better script. If you want to talk about the sense of cosmic justice, and I think where this all comes together is that what is, what is driving this invincible fallacy is 
this false belief that wherever we see these disparate outcomes, we must kind of come in and kind of randomize and equalize these things. And Sowell's point is twofold. You just gave a lot of natural examples. Sowell also says that nowhere in the history of humanity, and by the way, self-sorting can be within the same race. So people who like to be political agitators and race baiters, they'll talk about segregation in black and white neighborhoods. You know what else is super duper segregated? White neighborhoods. Irish don't live with Italians. Italians don't live with Germans. They're hyper segregated. Right. And what Seoul actually shows and what you can show mathematically is even if people have a very slight preference for their own race or religion, and I'll explain why that's not racism in just a moment, you get massive segregation. So again, there's a butterfly effect. Now watch this. That preference is just due to family. It has nothing due to race. People want to live. If you have a 51% preference to live near people in your family, you're going to get these massive butterfly effects of segregation. So Sowell is showing, and, and, and maybe we can conclude on this kind of you know, really poisonous philosophical point or philosophical error that people swallow. What he says is never in the history of either nature or society has anything been equally distributed. And worse yet, what makes the invincible fallacy so poisonous is that whenever someone observes inequality, they place the burden of proof on the accused. And so all right. you have to do is cry inequality, and the burden of proof is never reversed on the accuser to say, can you show any time in history or even in nature when all outcomes are equal? And they can't. And, right. and Sowell gives a great example. He said, uh, I think coming out of the 60s, 70s, the, the federal government sued Sears Roebuck, multi-year, maybe even multi-decade case, tens of millions of dollars expended. And they said Sears Roebuck was discriminating against women because the statistics, I believe, were disparate. But again, that doesn't prove anything. We've given so many Simpsons paradox examples where it looks like in the aggregate, one group is being discriminated against, but in fact, it may be the opposite. During that trial, the federal government never produced or was never required to produce a single female witness who said she had been discriminated against by Sears Roebuck. So the invincible fallacy is not only factually wrong, it is used to browbeat people into submission, to destroy their reputations, and to do so in a way that requires no evidence whatsoever. It, it, it's really painful. What happened to innocent until proven guilty? If someone comes along and says to you, your corporation, you as an individual, are doing unequal things, your name is smeared and you're kind of done and canceled to some extent, but for what reason and what burden of proof was placed on the accuser? Yes, it's brilliantly said and quite a damning indictment. Um, I'm reminded here too, as you said, there's never been a level playing field. I'm reminded to what Sailor said in our opening episodes together, who said there's never been a fair fight, right? There's, it's just never... <laughs> This idea of fairness or equality, it just doesn't exist, right? The burden of proof really should be on show me equality, show me where equality exists. And I think as far as in the sphere of human affairs, like the only place I can think of people actually achieving equality is in the grave, right? Like we're all going to die. We're all going to be dead one day. That's the only place human beings are ever equal. And when they're alive, we're all, kind of, we're all differences, that's what is that's the vibrancy of life in a way. If we were all the same or all equal across these different dimensions, there we wouldn't be alive. There'd be no the polarity is what creates um, uh, the vibrancy of life. I guess is the way I'm trying to say this, but um, it's silly, right? It's silly fair. that this first order. I'm reminded here of kind of like just the moral camouflaging where equality just sounds better. If you don't think about it, equality, inequality. Well, yeah, of course, let's, have, let's go with equality. That sounds a lot better. Everyone's just the same and we'll all, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And we know where that leads us, so. Yeah, a couple beautiful things just to tie up and I, and I know we, we may be getting a little short on time. So what you brought up there is, really strikes at the root. So there's equality and there's, and there's equity and there's equality. And again, these terms are very loaded. And, you know, much like when we discussed Hayek, like the word society has become meaningless. Well, the word equality has become meaningless. And I think the distinction which you've made in the past, and I just want to emphasize, there's equality of opportunity and there's equality of outcome. And I, I want to be very clear that the whole idea behind the rule of law is that everybody plays on a level playing field. So from the standpoint of every individual, irrespective of their race or gender, other idiosyncratic factors of history, having equal access 
and playing by the same rules, 100% in favor of that. What is not conducive to structure or order or even good outcomes for anybody is this Marxist ideal of equality of outcomes, which has never happened, will never happen. And watch this. You said there's never a fair fight. Thank God, because good ideas would never win. Right. If, if it were a tortoise, if it were a toss of the coin every single time for the market, we, we would have no hope of the cream rising to the top. The process of evolution, whether social or biological, is precisely about whatever set of factors, whatever set of success factors are required at that moment in time are the ones that rise to the top. And if everything was a coin toss, we would unsort the universe and right. unsort society very quickly. Yeah, wonderfully said. Uh, we end up in pure entropy. And yeah, it's just, it's the algorithm of evolution, right? If it works, keep it. If it doesn't, discard it. And when you remove, when you try to remove that, um, um, judgment factor or determining whether it's good, like, was it successful or not? When you, when you start giving everyone a, you know, trophy, everyone gets a participation trophy. There are no winners. Like all of this is very, um, detrimental, I guess, to that process of sorting out the best ideas, letting the cream rise to the top, as you said. Okay. This is an awesome conversation. I look forward to continuing. Um, we're leaving off on implications in chapter one. So we'll jump back into that in our next conversation. Anish, thank you so much for joining me again. Do you want to just let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work? Sure. I'm A-K-A-R-V-E on Twitter and A-K-A-R-V-E.com is where you can find some of my writing. I've been working more than writing, so it's a little bit scarce, but <laughs> the one article is there and it's a long one. Awesome. Thank you so much. Talk again soon. Thanks. I enjoyed it, Robert.